Well, how are you doing? I'm always tempted to say, how you all doing? You know, that's just something that I picked up when I lived in the South for three years, and it's one of those things I've been, it's been like over a decade now, but I can't get rid of it. So tempted to, how you all doing? Merging all my words together and, ugh. How are you doing? Come on, how are you doing? Do you have expectation in your heart for today? Do you have expectation in your heart for what this year is going to be for you? Man, God is just so good and He has awesome things in store for you this year if you're willing to believe Him and receive it from Him. You know, some people never believe that their life is going to change, that they believe that it's just going to be as it's always been, just same old, same old, more of the same. You know, how you doing? Oh, you know how I'm doing, you know. I'm surviving. Well, I'm not planning on surviving in 2019. I'm planning on thriving in 2019. And the difference is the attitude of your heart and what you believe about your God and what He has said about you. You don't just survive in Christ. He has called you to be abundantly blessed in your life and all that you set your hand to do. God is a good God. Say that. My God is good. My God is great. And I will believe Him. Hallelujah. Well, if you're joining us this morning via the internet, welcome. You know, it doesn't matter if you're in your living room or in wherever you are. You could be laying in bed in your pajamas for all I care. It's the same Holy Spirit where you are as right here in this place. So lock in with us and just draw on the gift of the Holy Spirit and he will get you exactly what you need to hear this morning. And that goes for you too. We don't come to church just to go to church. You know, church is not a religious obligation that we fulfill. It's a liberty that we get to enjoy. We get to come and freely worship God. There are places around the world that they don't get to do that. It's not a free thing that they can do. They can't come and just read their Bible and talk about the goodness of God. I had a friend who grew up in Saudi Arabia, and one day when we were in the change room getting changed, I noticed that he had these gruesome scars all down his back. And so I said, hey, what's up with that? And he said, I come from a country where it's illegal to be a Christian. And this is the result of me practicing being a Christian. They would tie him and they would whip him until he would bleed. People around the world have hearts for Jesus and there's people trying to stop us from worshiping freely. Thank God we live in Canada. We are so blessed to live in a free nation where we can gather. And it's sadly that we take that so much for granted. In 2019, don't take that for granted. Let's change our perspectives and realize the the joy and the liberty that we have in Jesus. Well, we started a new series last week about what is so amazing about grace. And throughout the Bible, the topic of grace is not just a topic. It's the very theme that is thread all the way through it. And a lot of people believe that grace is just a New Testament thing. Uh, It didn't start in the New Testament. It started all the way back at the beginning. God has always been a God of grace. And even to Noah, the story of Noah before the flood, it said that he had found grace in the eyes of God. 
Grace has never been something that started at Jesus. It's something that's always been a part of God. And we all know the classic hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And so last week, we, we explored its origins, and we talked about the writer of that hymn, John Newton. And he wrote that in 1773 in England, and it's, it's only gotten bigger and bigger ever since he wrote that. And they, they estimate that it's sung about 10 million times every year, which works out to 27,397 times a day. So it's already been sung a whole bunch of times today. But what was so amazing about what John Newton had seen in God? What was so amazing about grace? Because if we look at how most people respond to grace, you would pretty much say, well, it can't be that amazing. It didn't change how you act. Oh, come on. Come on. I'm going to pick on people today. I'll pick on myself first. There's been times where I haven't been that excited about the grace of God. And when you're not excited about what the Word says, you have to come to the realization that that means I don't truly believe it. Because if you read what God said about you, you'd be like, O-M-G. Literally, oh my God. Literally, oh my God, I can't believe that's what you've done. And really, we need to change our verbiage on it. Oh my goodness, I can believe what you've done. I do believe what you've said about me. I do believe in your goodness. I do believe in your mercy. I do believe in your grace, your blessings, your abundant provision. I choose to believe those things in this year. And really, if we boil this down to what we're talking about, what really is the message of the New Testament and really the message of the Bible? What is it? It's not that we were sinners in need of grace. We were, but that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is for God so loved the world. Forget about everything that happens after that. That first part of the statement is so important. God so loved the world. Question for you this morning. Do you live on planet Earth? So that means that it's you he's talking about. God so loved you. And, you know, we have a habit of trying to make it general sense. Oh, yeah, God loves us all. Yeah, yeah, he loves us all. But no, do you understand that God loves you? When you begin to understand the personal side of your relationship with God, and you're like, my goodness, the creator of everything loves me. That's the message of the Bible. You know, I was listening to podcast a few weeks ago and it was this pastor in the south he lived in a a town of about 8,000 almost 9,000 and his church was 1,800 people that's crazy moving towards 20 percent of the town was attending his church but the interviewer asked him this he says what's the thing that shocks you the most and he said well I'll give you an example from last week there was a lady that came to my church for the first time had been a Christian for 37 years in another church, and she heard for the first time in my service that God loves her. 37 years. Now, that's what's going on in the church. Think about the world. If Christians don't understand that God actually loves them, how is the world going to understand that God loves them? What did Jesus say? They will know 
you're my disciples by your love. And what love is he talking about? Romans said that the love of God has been poured into our hearts. And we love because he first loved us. If we don't understand the love of God, the overwhelming love of God, I was going to say reckless love of God because that's a really popular song and I'm not sure if I like it or not. I love the tune. I'll be honest with you. Can I be honest? Pastor, get to be honest for a moment. I don't know if I can... What's that? Please be honest. Please be honest. Don't, lie, don't lie to us, Pastor. Yes. You, you don't want to come to church to be lied to, but unfortunately that happens in a lot of churches. God's love necessarily isn't reckless. Do you know what the word reckless means? It means to act without consideration of the consequences. I believe God was very intentional about what he did, and he knew exactly what the consequences were going to be. God's love is overwhelming and never-ending, and it is relentless, and it will pursue you every day of your life, and all it takes for you to receive it and feel it is to stop and accept it. There's nothing you can do to warrant it, because at this point, when it says, for God so loved the world, you were hopeless, and there was nothing you could do to earn it. And so he says, God loved the world, so he gave. So God's motivating factor in his life is his love. Because he loved so much, he gave. And isn't that why we just went through Christmas, why we give gifts to those we love? Because we love them. Not because we hate them. We give to people because we love them. How much more our Father God... And so he says that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. My goodness. And then he says God sent his son into this world not to judge the world but to save the world. My goodness. I got to stop saying that word but it's just overwhelming. It makes my heart happy when I think about what God's motives are. He didn't come to judge the world. He came to save the world. That word used in the Greek there is the word sozo, which means he came to rescue you, to save you from danger, to pull you out of destruction, and to heal you. That's what the word sozo means in the Greek. It's not the, oh, happy day, when I'm dead, I'll go to heaven. No, he is talking about right here on this earth. The kingdom of heaven starts when you receive him, not where you end up. And so we can be partaking of heaven long before we ever set foot there. That's right. Because he didn't come to change your future, he came to change your present too. He came to revolutionize every area of your life. And I'm not, this wasn't, most of the stuff that I'm saying wasn't planned in my message this morning. But we really need to understand that God loves us. Say, he loves me. He loves me. Say it again, he loves me. God loves us with a never-ending love. And it says he didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. Now, what does a judge do? They bring a case before him, and then both sides plead their evidence. They show their evidence, and they say, okay, this is why this person should be convicted, and this is why they shouldn't be convicted. And then the judge, if it's, if it's a judge case, not a jury case, he weighs the evidence on its merits, and he says, okay, here is the verdict. And he does it based upon the law. But John 1.17 
16 says, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so the new law system that is in place is not the law of Moses. It's not the law of do good, get bad. Do, sorry, do good, get good, and do bad, get bad. It's the law of grace that has now entered into the system. So whenever the judge, who is God, who sits upon his throne, thinks about the merits of his case, he reacts with grace. And it says, and the word, which was Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full. Everybody say full. full. Of grace and truth. Now, what does it mean to be when something is full? Now, I'm sure you were at lots of family dinners over the <laughs> holiday season, and you ate, and you ate, and you ate, and you ate, and then you got to a point where you said, I'm full. What did you mean? I can't stick another thing in my stomach. I have just eaten too much food. I've drank in too much whatever. Nothing else can fit in here. If you're packing to go away on a trip and your wife has 30 bags of luggage that you're trying to stick into the trunk of your car, eventually you're going to get to the point and say, lady, it's full. We can't stick anything else in it. Okay, so now let's think about the grace of God. He is so full of truth and grace that he can't stick anything else in it. That's the God we serve. It's not that he's a little bit grace and a little bit truth and a little bit love. He is so full of it. Meaning that when you squeeze him, that's what comes out all the pores. And it says, and from his abundance, or from that fullness, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you're so full of it that it's overflowed into our lives. We receive your grace here this morning. We receive your grace in our lives. We thank you that it's not something we have to work for. God, your grace has already entered our lives via Jesus, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. In Ephesians 2, 4, it says, But God, who is so rich in mercy. And I told you last week, I love when they add words that are unnecessary. Just saying God is rich in mercy is great. But there's a different category of mercy that he falls into. It's the so rich in mercy category. And he loved us so much. Not just he loved us quite a bit. He loved us so much more than quite a bit. It says that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And I love that it says even though. So it's not because of our sins he sent Jesus. It was in spite of them. Mm -hmm. Hallelujah. And it says, for he raised us up from the dead along with Christ. And he seated us with him in heavenly realms because, everyone say it, we are united with Christ Jesus. What's the difference of we will be and we are? One is a future tense, and the one that we are is a present tense reality. You're not going to be united with Christ. When you believed and received that salvation, you were united with Christ. It's something that you are. You've been made one with Him. He raised Jesus up and He seated Him in heavenly places. And guess where you are? Seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That means we have to change our perspective on things. We often react to what's going on around us by our earthly knowledge and our earthly eyes. When we really 
really need to get a little higher and look at it from God's perspective. How can this problem be stumbling me up if it's so far away? It's so little. It's kind of like you being a giant and walking around and seeing an ant and going, ah, it's an ant. <laughs> what do you do? Squishy, 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 and keep on going. And so we need to change our perspectives on the problems of life because they can't hold you back. You've been seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And the next verse says, so. So the reason why he's done it, he's summing up why he's put you there. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and his kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this, though some of us would like to try. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. This is God's thoughts on salvation, and this is God's thoughts on you. You can't do enough bad to keep him away, and you can't do enough good to get yourself there. That's right. I like what one person said about grace. When you're trying to obtain salvation by your own merits, it's kind of like trying to climb to the moon on a sand ladder. It ain't going, you're not going anywhere. What you have done did not factor in to God's decision making. What he wanted to do and what he did is the only thing he considers. And so all of this is really based around one verse. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of ourselves or yourselves. It is a gift of God. So salvation is by grace. So if you want to look at it this way, grace is God's provision. He did all the work. It was all because of what he wanted to do without factoring in your goods or your bads. And the only way you grab onto it is by faith. And so what that means, the only way you can be saved is not by your works, it's by saying, God, I believe what you've done. Amen. He took the power out of your hands. Because you know that the faith that you have to use to do it, he gave you that faith. So he's not asking you to do something that you don't have the power to do. Right. He did all the work. And all he's asking for you is just to surrender to his goodness and his love. So we're really, we're exploring this word grace this morning. And in the Greek, which that's what the New Testament is written in, it's written in Greek, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, and there's a few parts that are written in Aramaic. But in the word for uh, grace in the New Testament is charis. And really, if we break it down to its simplest form, this is what its definition is in Greek, something that is beautiful, charming, or pleasant. And it's used to describe an act of loving kindness or generosity. That's where the word charis finds its roots. But Greek philosopher Aristotle defined it this way. He said it is helpfulness towards someone in need, not in return for anything. That sounds a lot like the grace of the Bible, right? Not in return for anything. Nor that the helper may get anything, but for the sake of the person who is helped. So, 
in just in Greek terms, we're not even talking about the Bible definition. We're just talking about in the basic use of the word charis. Because you got to understand, all the words used in the Bible found their roots in regular society. It's not like all these words were created. There's very few words in the Bible that didn't exist before the language that it was written down in. So the word charis, that's what it meant which I really think was a great word for Paul to choose or for God to choose to be used in here. It's helpfulness towards someone in need, not in return for anything. Again, the saying goes, you owed a debt you could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, that's where it found its roots in. But words can grow in magnitude as time goes on. You want an example? Let's use the word for explosion. Now, I'm pretty sure most of the guys in here at some point in their life when they were growing up played with a little cap gun. You know, sometimes they had the little strip caps. Mine were a little more modern. They were like the, the little um, plastic roll that you stick in and bang, bang, bang. What happens is there's chemicals in there that when put under force, they explode. And they make the little pew, pew sound. You know, that under its technical definition, is an explosion. But, you know, your perspective of explosion all changed when this happened. Where is it? It's not there. Well, I did have a nice nuclear explosion that was supposed to be inserted in there. I don't know what happened with that. But the definition or the depth of the word for explosion changed when the nuclear bomb was dropped. Up until that point, people had an idea of what they thought an explosion was. But after that bomb, the word, the depth of that word began to change. And the, the boundaries of what we consider an explosion expanded. The same thing happened with charis. When it began to be used in reference to God, a new depth of meaning began to be applied to it. I like what Tony Cook says. He says, it began to express not the simple, or not simply the infinite kindness of people, but the eternal love, compassion, and mercy of the one true God. So up until the point it was used in the Bible, it was used in a finite sense. There were limits. But how many of you know God has no limits? So now we take a word that used to have limits on it and we place it in the context of the God who has no limits and we get something more along this. Grace in the New Testament is in some respects one of its greatest words. It always means two things, God's favor and his blessing and his attitude and his action. So God's attitude never changes, right? So Therefore, the boundaries of his grace never change. If it was how it was when Jesus came, it's never changed since then. So God has never changed his mind about you. His love has never stopped loving you. His grace has never been stopped being extended towards you because his attitude never changes. Therefore, his favor never changes. Therefore, his blessings never change. And therefore, his 
actions never change. And Romans 8.32 tells us that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? And so if grace was, gave the provision of Jesus, God has not stopped supplying provision. It says, how shall he not freely give us all things? Meaning, in Paul's thinking, he said, if God did Jesus, why wouldn't he do everything else? And a lot of us have our thinking brainwashed by religion to think, well, why would God do this for me? When Paul's thinking is, why would God not? These are standing on polar opposites. Religion asks us, why would God consider you? The Holy Spirit says he considers you every day. That's right. He thinks about you nonstop. His heart goes, darn it. Every day. Yeah. But the sad reality is that most of us view God through human characteristics. We put how we would have our feelings about it and project them onto God. But God's feelings are not motivated by your feelings. And most people view God more like one of the Greek gods or the Roman gods. You never really know what mood you're going to get them in. And if you give the right sacrifice, then they'll be happy about it. But if you give the wrong one, oh, look out, Zeus is going to be throwing his lightning bolts down towards you. God is not like the Greek gods. He is not fickle in his responses to you. He is not looking for sacrifices from you. I love how if you look through the Old Testament, you see all these things happening and people are going, why God, why God? And I love in Ezekiel it says, I have not desired sacrifice. God desires mercy above all things. God desires love above all things. God desires grace above all things. And the thing is, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he's never changed his perspective on that. I love the next verse, though, because we always just quote that one verse out of context by itself. But the next verse says this, Do not be carried about by, with strange, various and strange doctrines, for it is good that a heart be established by grace. So if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he's then saying, don't move away from grace, because I have not moved away from grace. You weren't saved by me and now have to work by you. It's Jesus only. And the reality is religion has always tried to tell us it's Jesus plus. And it's nothing new to our times. If we look at the book of Galatians, what had happened? Paul came through and preached grace to them. And then he gets word back to himself that they've now moved on. People have come behind him and said, yes, oh, that Jesus, he is so great. He's really wonderful. You got to do Jesus, but you still need to keep the law. And what did Paul say about them? He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That you have so moved, so quickly moved away from the good news? Yeah. Paul was trying to say, you didn't begin under your strength and you don't need to continue by your strength. You just do it by faith. Father, I believe what you said is true about me. Yeah, that's right. And what we find is that a lot of people view God as the mean and angry one. And Jesus as the loving, merciful one. And that Jesus came between us and God to hold back his wrath. But do you want to know how garbage that is? Jesus is just like God. 
Here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, it says, For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in who? Christ. God's fullness was in Christ. What was Christ full of? Grace and truth. So God is not the angry one, and Jesus is not the loving one. They're both the loving ones filled with mercy and grace. Bible said so, not me. It says, and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. It was not God who needed to be fixed. It was man who needed to be fixed. God didn't have a problem. Man did. So God solved the problem with grace. And it says he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Okay. It says this includes you. Everyone say me. He's not talking about your neighbor. He's not talking about someone down the street. He's including you in what we're talking about. And so from henceforth in this, I've separated past tense verbs and present tense reality by red and green for your pleasure. It says, this includes you who were once far away from God. What does once mean? It meant that it's a used-to-be situation and not a present tense relationship with God. You used to be far away from God. You now no longer are in that category. You were his enemies, separated by him by your evil thoughts and your actions. Were, again, is past which means if you were his enemies, that means that right now you are no longer his enemies. Yet now he has, present tense reality, reconciled you to himself through the death of Jesus Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. So, if you've heard this statement before, I'm just a, save, a sinner saved by grace, you need to change it. You were a sinner saved by grace. It's no longer your condition because let me tell you this, every one of your sins were, hadn't been committed when Jesus paid for them on the cross. Every single one of them were still future tense for you, but they were present tense for him. He dealt with it all. Yeah, right. The situation of the Bible is not about your sin. It's about God's grace and God's love. And it says, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God. There again we see God and Jesus are not different. They're full of the same thing, and that's full of each other. In the human body it says, so you are complete. That's a worthy of preaching right there. You are complete through your union with Christ. So often we look at ourselves, there's something missing. There's something that I still need. But when you understand that when you receive Jesus, he completed you. It's kind of like, you know, the sappy love story. You complete me. No, they don't, but God really does. You are complete through your union with Christ. So if you tackle every situation that comes up as with this, this, this mindset, whatever I need, I've already got, you're going to bow before me. And so many people view their problems as, what am I going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to believe the God who said he's rescued you from it all. 
It says, when you came to Christ, meaning back when that happened, you were circumcised, not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision. He cut away your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted, or another better word is believed, it means the same thing, the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. It says you were dead because of your sins, because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave, everyone say it, all. Just a little bit of them? Just some of them? Just the ones he thought were worthy of being wiped away? All. And I love this saying, because it's very true, in my, the more I learn about Greek, when you see the word all, all literally means all. It has no substitutionary definitions. It only ever means all-inclusive everything. He canceled the records of the charges against us, and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. So what we've been talking about this morning is saving grace. This is the grace that everyone needs to come in contact with in the world. There is no other way for you to be saved but by the grace of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But the book of Colossians says that as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So if we think about that for a second, how did we receive the Lord? It was by grace, through faith. And so we're supposed to continue to walk in that. Is he meaning that we're to continue to walk in his saving grace? Do we need to get saved every day? And the answer to that is no. No, you don't. You get saved, you're saved. It's not a, it's not a, a condition that changes day to day. But as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, as each one of us received a gift, minister to it, one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What does the word manifold mean? It means many sides or various kinds. But you know that the one that we hear about all the time in churches is his saving grace. But over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about all the other kinds of graces that he's got. His sanctifying grace. We're going to talk about his strengthening grace. And those are just a little bit. There's so much more to the grace of God than just him saving you. His grace continues to work with you every day. And so if we look back to the hymn, it was amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That speaks of initiation. But if we drop to the third verse, it says, through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. That speaks of continuation. But in everything, we need to remember this, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. If you read through the New Testament, once you get to the epistles, you will find that all of them start their books with grace and end their books with grace. Why? Because you start with what's most important and you remind people at the end what's most important. All of Paul's thoughts were about grace. 
All of Peter's thoughts were about grace. And he told them in his final book that he wrote, grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord. So maybe you're here this morning or you're watching us via the internet and you haven't made that introduction with grace. Don't let it be another moment. All it takes for you is just to say, God, I believe what you said you did in Jesus and I receive it. That's how simple salvation is. It's not about joining a church. It's not about accepting a list of laws, rules, and regulations. It's about simply surrendering your life and saying, I believe you. So if that's you that I'm speaking to right now through the internet, go ahead and just reach your hands out to the screen with me and pray this with us. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I receive him right now. And I thank you for him. And if you just prayed that prayer with us, reach out to us, get in contact. We would love to get you hooked up with a good church in your area. And if you prayed that here with us this morning, we have some resources we would love to put into your hands. But I said last week, I believe that it's important that we end last year and start this year with a reminder of the grace of God because really it is amazing grace. You guys are all blessed. Have a fantastic week. We will see you next week. Have a good one.